Hey, everyone. Uh, we just wanted to jump out ahead of this episode to discuss our support of the Black Lives Matter movement and denounce the horrific police brutality occurring all over the country. Over the next couple of weeks, the episodes that you're about to listen to were recorded before the death of George Floyd and protesting that took place in response, and we would be remiss to remain silent. This is something we're deeply moved by and wanted to do our part in keeping the focus on what matters. The heart-rending problem of systemic racism is deeply ingrained in our country, and the struggle for systemic racial equality is fought by so few. Events as horrific as the deaths of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland, and most recently the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd have sparked the passion we are seeing sweep the country. This passion is not new as we recall the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, and now present in the Black Lives Matter movement. Here, we want to collectively throw our support towards the peaceful protesters, the organizers, and everyone leading the charge with the Black Lives Matter movement. We recognize that our podcast is an escape, and thank you for spending your time with us. However, there are far more important voices that deserve your attention, too. So we wanted to share those resources and provide a path to those voices, which will be linked in the show notes. True justice can only be achieved when individuals act justly. It is with this in mind that we share these resources on why systemic racism continues to persist in the fabric of our society and to learn what we can do to help. It's not enough to not be racist. We have to be actively anti-racist and to do our part to squelch the hate. Every little bit we do will create a path towards a future where we all share the most basic fundamental right of equality and safety. For future listeners, please consider looking through the resources available so this moment goes beyond a single point in history and transforms to the new norms of racial equality. Thank you for your time and enjoy this week's episode of MCU Need to Know. And welcome back to another episode of MCU Need to Know, a podcast dedicated to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything you need to know. I'm Trey. I'm Jude. How are you doing, Trey? I am super duper excited for this episode. Um, I think last week I was kind of clear on not being overly fond of the Daredevil episode we watched. And I have I've come in riding a high from the episode we're about to discuss today. Awesome. I'm really excited. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I think we talked about that towards the end where the episode overall was kind of that you mentioned that A-B cadence. Um, mm-hmm. But the way it ended uh, left you wanting to know what how does how does he get out of that situation? But yeah, of course, if this is your first episode of MC You Need to Know and you want to know what we're doing, we have been running through the Netflix Daredevil series uh, as a way to kick this podcast off. Uh, originally, our plan was to launch alongside Black Widow, but obviously, I'm sure I'm not bringing news to anyone with the way that the world has been adapting to COVID and, and, and release dates being pushed back. We've shifted our plans and we have decided to take a retroactive viewing of Daredevil. It's been fun so far. I would say actually something I I just saw, I think the UK is getting Black Widow 10 days earlier than the the new release date. So it's like October 28th or something. That's going to make avoiding spoilers real fun. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know it's hard to coordinate worldwide releases in a normal setting, but I I can't imagine how much more difficult it's going to be once we're dealing with everything that could potentially happen again with COVID. Yeah, the the source that I saw this on 
talked about how the possibility of like using this as a test run, you know, with mm-hmm. what kind of numbers is this going to bring coming back to theaters uh, after all the lockdowns that people right. have been going through and what kind of money projections. Um, and then to take that and, you know, project out into other markets. I mean, the big the big question has been, can Marvel movies restart the movie industry? And we've talked about it before, how it's so unfair for the character, obviously, Natasha and Scarlett Johansson, how they've they've deserved their own solo movie for so long than to have it be pushed back. And now it has this immense pressure on it to restart the movie industry. I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see how it ultimately plays out across movie audiences. I feel like this is popular enough that this could do it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you try to think about what other movies, Wonder Woman, um, like like notice what? like the stuff that's coming to mind is not your indie in, indie type movies, right? It's the big blockbuster movies that you're going to bring a bigger audience in. Uh, mm-hmm. So if anything, like these could be the things to do it. Although I think movies will probably have a quicker turnaround to to streaming now. Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing that how different movies are testing different avenues of digital release, whether it be, hey, pay this one-time fee, you owe it forever, or here's this you know high premium price to just rent it once. I think Trolls, you had to pay like 20 bucks to rent it for 48 hours, and then... There was some movie with Vin Diesel. I can't even remember the name. It was a cheesy action movie. A cheesy action movie. Uh, it was Bloodshot. Our cousin yes. Robert introduced me to that comic, uh, Valiant Comics. Yeah, uh, I ended up, I I paid the, the price, but I get to like own it forever. Like it, it wasn't just a rental thing. So it, it, studios are definitely playing around with different formulas. Okay, when we're done with this recording, you're going to have to tell me if you liked it. Because that's something I'd, I'm, I, I collected um, Bloodshot Comics. When I was uh-huh. in middle school. So I, I was curious to how that movie turned out. Did you like the comics? I did. I did enjoy those comics. Either way it shakes out, uh, we are here to discuss season one, episode six of Daredevil, titled Condemned. So let's go ahead and jump into that. Immediately, we pick up where we last left off in the previous episode where Daredevil is cornered by the police officers. Uh, it's a very tense scene where it, Daredevil is slowly lowering himself to the ground and allowing himself to be apprehended and then of course once daredevil realizes that these are cops that are on fisk's payroll he springs into action and is able to subdue them so that him and vladimir can get away you know i liked how they started with the slow-mo because we talked about how or in various ways you mentioned that daredevil was in his anger right so he didn't catch the cops coming and that's how he got caught uh, I mentioned he's in this whole letting the devil out. So I liked mm-hmm. how they did that slow-mo because it was almost like slowly bringing us as an audience back to that place and, and reacquainting us with what was happening and mm-hmm. kind of bringing Daredevil out of that that moment and back to, to his own senses. Because they always describe like, you know, it's a blinding rage. Like you, you don't pick up on anything else and have that disorienting effect of having his voice distorted and, and saying, I think he said something like hands up and then back to reality. Like you said, that was very effective. Honestly, the thing that I really like about this episode is because of the way that it plays out where, you know, Matt feels cornered. We learned that these are comps that are on Fisk's payroll. And we're going to see in this episode just how far Fisk's reaches 
throughout his various ways that he can control the city that he lives in to make this a difficult time for Matt. And just setting it up with here and the cops just... It was like watching the cat and mouse game just be put into action. To me, it was a great intro. Yeah, I, I, I did find it interesting that the again creative choices they did the cuff. Did did we honestly expect him to not fight his way out if they weren't dirty cops? Yeah, I mean, what was what was the plan there? Like it had to happen, but yeah, and for, so I just wasn't sure what he was waiting on to put the cuffs on. Because I was thinking, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot that I kind of like mulled this over briefly while I was watching this episode. You know, you can make the argument that he feels cornered and there's nowhere to go because they they have guns pointed in his direction. But peeking ahead a little bit and towards the end of this episode where you see where people with larger guns are pointing at him and that hasn't stopped him before. So what was it that stopped him here? Yeah. uh, Now, I mean, it was it was good choreography with the fight and he was handcuffed and, you know, displaying the athleticism and all of that stuff. Great. Like, I'm not going to complain about that, but I'm I'm just trying to figure out like what he was listening for, what he was doing, you know, because because the way it was shot, he didn't really react until he realized they were dirty. And my right. thought was, you're fighting yourself, you know, you're fighting your way out anyways. And I do want to say Sergey met his end here. And the only reason why I'm bringing that up first, I don't know why last episode it was so hard for me to say Sergey. <laughs> in the late night hey, i'm not even sure i said simon right in a couple episodes back so <laughs> well in the late 90s i remember watching the dallas stars and one of their defensemen was sergey zuboff like mm-hmm. i know how to say it i just couldn't <laughs> hey i look if we do this long enough i think we're all going to run into words that give us trouble i'm still haunted by me not being able to say choreography in episode one <laughs> so we start with a shot directly at Ben. Um, and what we see is he's building his crime board uh, and kind of putting together all the details he has from that previous Union Allied case. Um, at this point, he experiences the explosion. So it's a slight flashback here. Um, and then as a press room, there's some chaos. Uh, I can't remember his editor's name, but his editor starts um, barking out orders. And then Ben asks for locations and recognizes those as Russian controlled and knew immediately that this was not um, a natural disaster. Right. Which is really keen of him to pick up on and, and, and rush off It'd be a great way to show how capable of a character he is. I think one of the things that I immediately liked about this scene was, I mean, we've seen hundreds of like vision boards in crime shows where people are trying to like piece together, like how everything's connected Mm-hmm. I, I really like the simple use of the playing cards here to kind of represent, you know, like the king with the question mark and the Joker. Like it was such a quick visual mechanic uh-huh. and we get to see everything Ben knows without him having to say a word. And it just oh, yeah. it creates this Im- image imagery of him being a very pensive and smart person. Right. And the one of the notes I jotted down was that he had uh, Vladimir and Anatoly as Jax, um, which is, you know if you play cards, a high value card, but the lowest of the face cards. Um, mm-hmm. So, so even there, he kind of, at least with those two, um, and clearly a king for the person on top, you know, I mean, I like that, that use. I don't know if I've ever seen it done in a show before like that. Right. That's I was kind of wanted to say that, but I, I didn't, I couldn't think of enough examples to like back that up, but it, it feels unique. Another note that I had though, that I want to bring up here 
the fact that I called it a Joker and you corrected that it was a Jack, I wish I knew cards better. <laughs> so that I can that I could appreciate there's so many times in in film and TV where the playing cards is like used to represent how the story's going and because I don't know cards that well like it's always lost on me. I I honestly thought I just missed seeing the Joker when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need I need to just sit down and learn how to play cards so I can appreciate movies. You know what? Last was it last Thanksgiving? Two Thanksgivings ago? I taught my Uh kids and my now fourth grader, so I guess second grader at the time, beat us at Thanksgiving. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. But back to to the scene here, uh, I think another one of the things that I loved about this is, you know, we talked about it in episode one, how the that end of the episode roundtable with the different Union Allied factions having their meeting grounded this corner of the universe in a way that made it feel really believable the fact that the explosion we felt last episode wasn't just a a set piece grand spectacle and we get to see the way that it was affecting everything in this episode made everything feel grounded like seeing seeing the editor start like listing off like hey you know call gas and electric see if they know what's going on go here and do this like it made it feel believable to me right and honestly i don't think we ever saw a big explosion i mean in the well, well, I mean, I'm going back to the previous episode, right? Because timeline-wise, you know, Ben here is experiencing that explosion in terms of not being a big spectacle set piece. We saw it from Fisk and Vanessa through the window, and we saw the the human shield with Daredevil, and we saw Karen Foggy, the windows being blown out. But it wasn't, like, when you say big spectacle, I'm thinking Michael Bay or right. or the the hospital coming down in the dark night um, in this beginning episode kind of getting Ben's character caught up and the end of last episode. I don't think we got that, which to me shows kind of, I mean, I'm sure there's some like money constraints being a Netflix show. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's that, I think that just shows a really good creativity of having that kind of scale without having to show it uh, yeah. in that way. After this scene, we are joined with Wesley and Fisk who is finding out about the fact that Vladimir is on the run and he is accompanied by the man in the black mask. Fisk is very concerned because he feels like he's betrayed Gal's trust. Yes, which I found that interesting because uh, we have, trying to remember, was it Cutman? Mainly the first time we saw Fisk with the, with the group and you mentioned how they were kind of equals uh, and I mentioned, you know, it felt like Fisk still had kind of control here. Um, but here it it doesn't feel like they're equals or Fisk has control. He seems worried that Gal's going to back out or Gal might turn on him, which is interesting. I mean, he's the big bad. And so you kind of expect him to be the one that's feared. But I mean, we get to see that flipped on its head because we see how much he values her opinion and trust. And I don't, the way that I read it is less that he's afraid of her. And more so that, like, he just genuinely doesn't want to upset her. There were, The way that he mentioned the line, it's impossible to lie to that woman. Mm-hmm. I, there was something, and I don't know if this is weird, but there, it was almost like affection in a way of friendship, if that makes sense. Like, that's how I kind of read the scene a little bit. I can see that. I, I Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, that, that other time I mentioned, the first time we saw them all together, 
he did offer, you know, and I don't know if I took it as kind of playful banter between two characters at the time, but, you know, he offered, you know, Mr. Fisk would like to walk you. He hands her her arm. She responds through Wesley, you know, what are you playing at? What are you trying to get? You know, and he, he has seemed to favor Gao over any of the others. Another thing that I liked in this scene is kind of playing off that, the comment I had in the opener where we're seeing the start of this cat and mouse game between Fisk and Matt, because Matt obviously is on the run and Fisk is flexing all his various uh, connections to kind of make trouble for Matt. I really like the way this scene transitions to the next with Wesley saying like, well, what are we going to do? And Fisk says, let the cops do their job. That's what I'm paying them for, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And to me, that that mm-hmm. it felt like such a cocky flex on Fisk's part. Mm-hmm. And I liked it. Yeah, I, I uh, no, I liked half of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I liked the let, um, let them do their jobs. The second line, that's what I'm paying them for, to me was unnecessary. Like we, like, like we know, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, like it's another one of those where it felt like you're not, why are you trying to spell this out for me? By you know, by this point we've seen Blake murder somebody by the mention of your name. It, it just seemed like an extra line that wasn't needed. Mm-hmm. If if that makes sense, I mean, even, no, that makes complete sense. Yeah, and I mean, even going to that next scene, Blake and Hoffman show up to one of the bomb Russian bomb sites, right? And they're starting to basically look for survivors, look for what, and well, I use term survivors loosely for what they're doing. <laughs> uh, but but you know, they're they're checking out what's going on, um, and it's so funny in the in the little scene descriptions you write, you say they interrogate somebody. In my note, I say they torture somebody for information. (laughs) (laughs) You know. I guess I'm taking too much of a neutral stance in these (laughs) scene descriptions. (laughs) Well, and then, and then after, I mean, he tortures, I mean, he's, you know, he's stepping on that big concrete cinder block that's on his leg, forcing information out of this guy. um, And then he shoots him in the head and yells out, uh, if you find anyone else alive, shoot him. Like he yells it out clearly. So he has no fear of the other cops. Right. Right. And so I felt like if he would have just said, let the police do their job, then you go into that scene and hear Blake yell that that has a bigger impact. Like you're comfortable yelling that out than with when you don't have that line. Okay. Yeah, I I can see that Uh, because I mean, almost like I was complaining about last episode and that scene between Wesley and Turk where I felt like they were patting themselves on the back by having Turk explain like, man, I really respect a clever move or something like that. I, I totally see what you mean about that second part of the line being like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. Well, and to me, I think when, when Blake yells that in the warehouse, that, that gives you a really good sense of scale that he's comfortable yelling that out to everybody, mm-hmm. you know, um, no fear of repercussions whatsoever. Oh yeah. You know, and to me that, that would have had an even bigger impact without that second line. I, I think you might have won me over a little bit on that. Now, I, I still like it, but I, I see your point as well. After those scenes where we see Hoffman and Blake uh, 
torture the Russian criminal for information. We are joined again with Matt, who's running away with Vladimir hoisted on his back. Police sirens and helicopters can be heard all around. And eventually, Matt finds an abandoned warehouse where they hole up for a bit to try and figure out what's going on between the two. I really liked... Well, I mean, the conversation in this scene is one they pull throughout the rest of the the movie. Um, And it's something we've been dancing around, that... Does he have a no-kill rule? The, the letting the devil out? What is his end game? And Vladimir starts to just ask him questions directly. You know, I think the quote is, or well, Matt says, you've got the wrong guy. I don't kill people, not even scumbags like you who deserve it. And then Vladimir points out, hey, you dropped somebody off a roof. Um, yeah. You know, and, well, then his response, yeah, but he's still breathing, wasn't he? Um, and I'm like, you... And my thought was you dropped him off the roof. You had no way of knowing really what was going to happen when he hit the concrete. And I mean, we talked about it too. If it weren't for Claire stopping and asking him, hey, what about him? He never would have checked to see that he was still breathing. So it's like he's almost retroactively trying to justify what he did. Yes. Yes. No, I mean, I to me, honestly, like you said, you know, we've been tracking this no death rule all season and it's being openly debated on screen. And I think the reason that I found this episode powerful, it, it, it starts here. Like we're seeing, obviously, with with Matt and Vladimir, but to me, what's going on on a larger scale is that we're seeing both Matt and Fisk ideologies at play here mm-hmm. with Vladimir as their test subject. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of, it's very reminiscent of that, that scene in The Dark Knight with the Joker dilemma between the two boats and having the button to blow up the other. Yes, yeah. And... I don't know. I like that. It's such a simple concept of what this episode is on the surface, but the way that they get to explore this no death code theme throughout the episode just made me fall in love with it. Yeah. And I liked um, the awareness of the showrunners uh, that, hey, we're going to dedicate a whole episode to this. It's, it's, it speaks to what you talked about how with long form storytelling, you can take the time to to pump the brakes a little bit and really dive into a point. And they're definitely taking the time to dive into a point with this episode. Yes, very much. So after Matt and Vladimir's back and forth, we eventually arrive at the hospital where Foggy and Karen have walked in Mrs. Cardenas, who is very clearly injured. They're shouting for help when Claire arrives and immediately takes Mrs. Cardenas as her patients. While Karen and Foggy find out about the explosions on the news, they try and check in on Matt, but obviously he's not answering. And they discover that Foggy has been badly injured. Yeah, this was a, a quick scene. Um, to be honest, I don't have much much notes on it. Uh, but mm-hmm. I liked that they... <laughs> I liked that they chose to injure Foggy. You know, like... like it, <laughs> I see why you, you paused there for a second. <laughs> Look, man, I, I, <laughs> I know he doesn't have your favorite scenes, but come on. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, I, <laughs> well, cause I keep, I, I keep thinking about him bringing up the, the internal struggle of about Matt and Daredevil is a question of justice. What's the best way to serve justice? We have the backstory that they gave us through the flashbacks, but it, for me, never felt like the Batman tale of my parents are dead. I'm going to go exact revenge and fix the city in this way so this never happens again right for me it feels like a 
internal struggle about what is the best way to serve justice. And Foggy, as a part of that, jumping into action like he did last episode, I just liked that he wasn't impervious to getting hurt. There was actual consequences to what he was doing, so it makes it makes that willingness to jump into action that much more heroic on his part. Yes, yes. Like you said, I, I really didn't get too many notes here on this scene as well. The thing I liked about it is that it's very similar to the, er- the earlier scene where all the reporters were gathering information. It's grounding the universe because we're seeing this convergence of characters and how the single event brought them all together. So obviously you have Foggy, Karen, and Cardenas, and then Claire comes in, and then it, it carries on with the hospital administrator that I, I, I can't remember if we ever figured out her name, but she starts coming into the scene as well. So you're seeing all the various storylines we've been following and the ripple effects of the explosion. Shirley is the character name. Suzanne H. Smart is the actress. Thank you, Susie. Susie? Suzanne is for... Suzanne. Is the... I'm already nicknaming her. I feel comfortable <laughs> nicknaming her. <laughs> and that's the actress name. The character name is Shirley. Shirley, got it. Okay, good to know. But yeah, it's just like, I, I like that we're, we're seeing a convergence here. Yes. So after that quick check-in with Foggy and Karen, we see that Claire gets a phone call from Matt and she immediately hides out in the stairwell to have a conversation with Matt. Matt informs her that he needs to stabilize a body that's been shot, but he doesn't feel comfortable asking her without first telling her who it is. And once he reveals that it's Vladimir, she's obviously very apprehensive. I liked <laughs> I liked the beginning where... Because shows do this, right? Or I don't know if they always do this, and I don't know when this trend happened, but they they use that line, you know, this isn't the movies, or it's not as easy as the movies, uh, to kind of establish that they're realism, you know, um, mm-hmm. but then go on to do unrealistic things. Uh, but I liked the use of it here because Matt's blind, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and so you're able to get a little bit of, um, I think humor that worked. You know, given the situation, like I don't tonally, I don't think it was out of place. Um, yeah. And I I wanted to ask you, do you think he was right in telling her who it was? Like, because he didn't have to. I think he is right. I know it's not practical because if we live in a universe where she didn't help him and which she would have been justifiable and not wanting to after everything that she's done, after everything that he's done to her. But it's still like it still has to be Claire's call because because I, I can tell you, like, I I'm glad that he told her and gave her the choice. Honestly, in the moment, you know, I can see the choice going the other direction. Uh, I mean, as storytellers, you might have to deal with that ramification, you know, you know, mm-hmm. of, of of not asking the question or telling. Her. Um, but but there you could have gone either way. And I don't think I would have questioned it uh, mm-hmm. as a viewer. The reason that I kind of trailed off there is I was skimming my notes because I, I one of the notes I took, I can kind of like fit into the way that you've asked me this question. You know, last week I complained about how it felt like we didn't see characters make a lot of choices in that last episode. And it was just a lot of like stuff that happened. Yeah. I I really like that we get to see Claire make this choice here. I mean, it's it's just good storytelling. And, you know, watching Claire wrestle with knowing that Matt needs Vladimir alive for a good reason, but also knowing that he's responsible for this trauma 
we get to see like a, a, a proving ground, I guess. I, I keep coming back to this, this, that phrase. Mm-hmm. We get mm-hmm. to see that proving ground for Claire. And I think that just works mm-hmm. on a narrative level for us. Yes. Yeah. The only other note that I have for this scene is I'm, I'm glad that they took the time last episode to really dive in and describe how Matt's powers work. Because we have that scene where Claire is directing him to find various different things to help cauterize the wound for Vladimir. And the way that he surveyed that warehouse, even for a superhero show, felt like a bit of a stretch. So I I thought it was a good that they took that time last episode for this particular moment. You know what I find funny about that is every time I go walking through my house with the lights off and things are in place, you'd think I'd be able to do it and I can't. <laughs> I completely feel that I because I, I I work in lawn service and we have a warehouse where we store all our equipment and to get to the light switch I have to walk in the dark for a bit and if just one little thing out of place and I am immediately stumbling on the ground yeah and it's the way he surveyed oh there's two flares <laughs> <laughs> you know what I I I call shenanigans. He made one mistake. That was that was in a rusty toolbox, not a roadside kit. <laughs> Good catch. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to total that for Daredevil's report card by the end of the season. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so after Matt cauterizes Vladimir's wounds, we find ourselves with a patrol officer on the trail of Matt and Vladimir discovering where they are due to Vladimir screaming. He tries his best to apprehend Daredevil, but of course we know that can't be done. And after Matt subdues him, he begins questioning whether or not he is part of Fisk's payroll. Yes. Uh, you know what? I had a note here um, that was more of a question for you. Was uh-huh. was the cop's choice to not uh, do his... Daredevil slash Matt asked, brave or stupid? It's stupid because we know who Matt is. But it's it's nice narrative irony here that in this battle between the idealist and the realist, we see this brand new officer who makes matters worse because he's doing things the right way. But clearly we know that Matt is the good guy here and this poor guy has no idea the problems he just created. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, I just, I felt bad for the guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and honestly, I, if if I'm the young cop and you think, you know, logic, reason or whatever, he doesn't have good reason to trust the man in the mask. Mm-hmm. That. He's too new. Yeah. I mean, he's too new, um, but he has, he, his honestly, his probably best way to maybe get out um, or to have the man in the mask to ever get caught is to do what he did. And I don't even think it was uh, out of self-preservation. Like the way that he screams, you know, here's the location, man of the black mask with perp. And then Daredevil knocks him out. Like, I think he genuinely was upholding his oath to to try and bring this guy in. I don't even think it was like him thinking, okay, this is my best way out. Right, right. It's just, it, like, it's, I, you know, nice narrative irony that Matt's obviously someone with strong convictions about doing the right thing. And this guy, you know what it almost, I, I, we keep making comparisons to Batman. It reminds me of that scene where the civilians also dress up and it's like, hey, how come we can't do what you do? And Batman's like, <laughs> I'm not wearing hockey pads. Like, it has that same energy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Trey's Batman voice. <laughs> yeah, it, but it does. It, you're right. It it has that that same uh, that same feel. <laughs> Another thing that I like is you once brought up this idea about the way this show has kind of treated leveling up the threats like a video game. Mm-hmm. Within the context of this episode, it has a very similar feel because we see how this rookie patrol officer stumbles onto Matt's location and it kind of, it sets our pace. Like it's creating this nice ramp of difficulty that we see play out as the episode continues. Right, right. You know, I have a note here that says hearing Blake's voice is important. And I forgot why I put that note. When he called it in, was it Blake? I think it was Blake's voice that answered it, right? Right. Okay. And that, so that's why I put that down because knowing what just happened with Blake earlier, to have Blake to be the first one to respond to me was, was a nice touch and important because it kind of let us know that Fisk was in control. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a feeling of suffocation. Like there's so many times where these characters are reaching out to try and do things the right way. And each time Fisk is there to squash it. Right. And, and they, it's a feeling of hopelessness. Yeah. And they did a really good job of having that feeling of putting him in that warehouse and having that feeling like it was closing in on him. Cause I Very mean, much so. I mean, until that moment, you don't know if that's a clean or dirty cop, you know, I mean, I mean, you, you ask the question and you're trusting daredevil's ability to read hearts and tell the truth whether or not he's clean or dirty. So in the next scene, uh, we're seeing various police officers arrive. Uh, Blake and Hoppin wave them off and mention that this is now a hostage situation where they will be running the lead on that. And of course, one of our favorite characters, Ben, arrives on the scene and immediately tries to start poking for information. I loved how this showed how good Ben is at his job. He, the, the, the mental tit for tat that, these, that, that Ben and Blake and Hoffman have is just so fun to watch. Well, yeah, I mean, the way he starts asking questions in such a way that Ben knows the answer, like the cop's name, Sullivan, but gets them to confirm it, uh, whereas Hoffman mm-hmm. did, and Blake was like, you know, why are you talking to him? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, you know, and just shows <laughs> that, like, he knows, and, and he even made that comment, like, you know, how do you know that? He's like, oh, I mean, A, he's, he said, I've been doing it a long time, but also, I'm not sure he fully knew until they said that. He gave them just enough rope to hang themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I really enjoyed um, not just not just that moment, but but every time we saw Ben, you had a little something like that. Well, you, you got to see, you know, in the, in the other ones, you know, you you get this sense that he loves the news and his job. But here you really get to see it. Yeah, he's clearly in his element. Like there's something so satisfying about watching people in their elements because they almost feel untouchable. Yes. Yes. Well, and then there was a moment from Blake's side that I thought was just really unsettling because, you know, he say he says to him, I can't promise you don't get caught up. And in some ways, it's I, I think from Ben's side, you're just kind of taking it in the sense of like, you're annoying me and I'm saying this. But from what we know, this that could mean Ben's dead intentionally. So. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's what I what I, I wrote down is like, you won't get this on your first watch, but I, I love this exchange you're describing because Ben says, I'll keep my head down. And Blake very skeptically writes him off like, yeah, you do that. And you're you're framing this as like we, the audience in this first watch are going to rightfully be worried for Ben. 
But in the second watch, we obviously know Blake doesn't know what's coming. And it kind of has a satisfying feel of like a comeuppance coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Foreshadow. (laughs) Actually, I have a question about that because I think, and this, we may have to edit this out, but last episode, I think, or maybe episode before, you talked about foreshadowing your end of the podcast question. Do you not like the term foreshadowing? No, 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 no. I think it's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Because no, 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 no. you, you said something along the lines like, uh, I almost said foreshadowing. No, I it, it have nothing to, to do with my like or dislike of foreshadowing. You know, I, I think okay. it's, I like it when um, creators use foreshadowing uh, in a really clever way, you know? Yeah. Um, like, there's a skill to it. Yeah, because there's times where it's just like, you know it's coming. You know, and they just, they spell it out for you. Uh, and then there's mm-hmm. times where it's just, it's really subtle. It rewards the, the repeat watches. Yes. Well. So after I, that exchange. I was going to say, on that, on that line, for example, to jump into MCU proper for a second, um, Black Panther uh, has this line about something to the fact that if when Thanos comes here to Wakanda, all that he'll have is dust and blood. Uh, and that was a really subtle and clever foreshadowing that no one saw coming until a rewatch. No, no one had any idea the scale of the emotional punch we were about to get. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good call to the MCU proper. I, I like that. So after we get that scene with Ben, Blake, and Hoffman, we are back in the car with Wesley and Fisk, and we get to hear Blake relaying the information to Wesley, which Wesley in return relays to Fisk, uh, telling about the man in the black mask who has assaulted the police officer and is now holding him hostage, and they're waiting for Fisk to give them permission to take the building so that they can wrap this up. And before this scene ends, Wesley does take the time to mention Ben by name, and both Ben and Wesley... Both Fisk and Wesley seem very concerned about the fact that Ben is on the case. Yes. Uh, I, I really like that. Just kind of reinforce um, the waves Ben is making, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a clever way of showing the reach of Fisk, of how, yeah, he, you know, he basically said, eh, fine, I'll call the rest of my media in. They're like, I think he even specifically has a line to the fact of, Oh, what was it? Um, problems are just opportunities that haven't presented themselves yet. Yes. Like he, yeah. he doesn't even flinch. Like he, I think I, I think I set up the scene wrong by saying that Fisk is worried, but it, really we, it was Wesley that was worried and it, it gets to, to show off Fisk's competency. But one of the notes that I wrote down is that we've seen Wesley be this, you know, even keeled persons throughout. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. has been the one always assuring Fisk everything's under control. Don't worry about it. But I have never been more afraid for Ben than when Wesley was worried about him. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I will. I. I. I don't remember how things play off for Ben, but I. I legitimately got scared in this episode. Well, we'll find out at the also, end if he makes it through this episode. Yeah. Can we award two MVPs? I know we've been like joking around about doing this. Can we give it to both Wesley and Ben this episode? Uh, sure. Why not? Uh, Ben, Ben for sure. I don't, I don't know. I might have to uh-huh. be convinced on the Wesley for this episode. Uh, uh-huh. and only because we see so little of Wesley. True. I, God, I might, if I had to do co MVPs, I might throw it to, to Vladimir, but yeah, I think that might be the more obvious choice. Yeah. I think from here we move on. Uh, Joe devil and Vladimir, uh, question as I, as I go to set this up, I bounce back and forth. 
because as so far when he's the man in the mask he's the man in the mask he hasn't taken the daredevil moniker is that okay can i Mm -hmm. say daredevil is that are we good um i've i've definitely said daredevil before um it's up to you. I to it. It's weird the way that we distinguish that. Like, because I mean, you, nobody sees this in the that listens to the podcast. But the notes that I write for each episode, you can tell the difference of how I'm feeling by whether I say Matt Daredevil or Man in Black Mask. Yeah. So I get that apprehension to not call him Daredevil yet, but I think it's it's fine. At this point, we're back with Daredevil and Vladimir. Uh, Matt is cuffing uh, <laughs> Officer Sullivan, <laughs> bouncing back and forth. Matt is cuffing off Officer Sullivan to the pole after subduing him and then begins his interrogation of Vladimir, trying to get information on Fisk while Vladimir starts to point or starts to poke holes in uh, what Daredevil believes he's doing. Right. And to me, this is where that debate of the no death code gets hairy because we've been talking about it like it's this black and white scenario but Vladimir brings up a good point that, you know, if we take Matt at his word, he reveals that if he didn't need Vladimir, he would have let him die. And much like we discussed with Matt's responsibility on the death of Simon, here we get to run a scenario with whether or not it would be in the wrong for Matt to allow Vladimir to die. Right. Well, my note here says Daredevil has a very narrow interpretation on his no death code. <laughs> You know, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. You you asked that about there. And I mean, go on first. OK, let's put it this way. Matt for the show um, is Catholic. Right. And, mm-hmm. and and they really try to show and I've mentioned this before his Catholicity. Every Sunday, part of the mass, we say the penitential rite, And a part of that, we say, forgive me for what I've done and for what I failed to do. Matt mm-hmm. knows this. Right. And he's really, I mean, Matt's well-educated. He's a lawyer, went to Columbia, right? So he's he's an intelligent person. And so he knows, I feel, that he's playing fast and loose with this, this idea of, well, here's what my intentions are, but this is my action. You know, because there's a lot of this where you could say, no, you were there, you're in action. You know, forgive me for what I failed to do. It would have been the cause of Vladimir's death. And mm-hmm. it's on you. And I mean, to kind of like play off what you were saying about forgive me for what I've done and what I've failed to do, we see how Matt warps that in episode one because he instead says, forgive me for what I'm about to do. And the father pushes back on, you know, that's not how this works. So I think you're right in that Matt knows that he's playing loose, but it's almost like he's been trying to justify it, at least up until this point. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, in to be careful on how far I want to go down this road. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, at at its core, at its core, when you when people make moral choices, there's intentions, right? What you want to have happened, and there's the action itself. And if Matt's action, right, is I'm not, I'm only saving him because I need him, right? Then that intent when you don't save him because you need him um, is an intention for him to die. If that, mm-hmm. if, if you follow me kind of down that path. And so that's why I say it's like, he's really playing fast and loose with what he considers not killing and killing. I mean, beyond just, yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about throwing someone over, you know, um, but when you actually really start to think about it in those terms, 
then man, it's he has a lot of work to do to 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 live up to this that phrase. I don't kill people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's hard. Like it, it, like I said, this is definitely where it starts to get hairy. Uh, trying to track how he's interpreting that code. Mm-hmm. I think another thing I like about this scene is that you know I I, I said it before, but just kind of re- to reiterate it here, we're seeing this fight over ideologies. And we obviously know who wins by this episode's end, but the way Vladimir is implanting that idea in his head that they're no different is it's such great drama because we've already seen that Matt has this temptation to let the devil out. And now there's going to be this nagging question in his head. Is Vladimir right? Are they no different than each other? And that it's just a matter of time before Matt starts killing. Like, does Matt have to compromise what he believes to ultimately take down Fisk? Right. Uh, and And I think that, that's the largest theme of this whole episode, at least for the Daredevil, or not this episode, the whole series for this mm-hmm. uh, Daredevil character, that what is the right way to do justice? I mean, when you, if I step out outside of this for a second and think about, you know, Batman clearly has the no-kill rule, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the clever things about Christopher Nolan's, I don't want to say the trilogy, I'm just going to go with the Dark Knight, because if you do it as mm-hmm. a trilogy, that you kind of start having problems. They did a really good job of making Batman Bruce Wayne have choices and choose a way to not kill. And clearly Daredevil's choices here doesn't avoid killing or at least the possibility that the person dies. And 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 so that's something that we're seeing him work out and struggle with. But on a larger scale, like you kind of get that conscience of shows like this you know i mean the end of man of steel one of the big complaints was the end scene and the destruction of all the innocents and 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 all of that and the next big marvel movie i think that came out was age of ultron and they spent a good portion of that third act everybody gets out of sokovia right collateral damage was a focal point of civil war you know and and so i i think also us just talking about it and no longer just accepting you know because i remember watching this the first time in the human shield it was just like "Eh, you just it's daredevil i'm gonna eat my popcorn and go you know and and enjoy it but i so i think the that this rewatch and and the way we're talking about this also shows how how things have changed and what we expect out of shows like this the the bar has definitely been raised and we're seeing them try to reach for it. I will say this, this this is just a small note. I, I don't know if we can dig too much into it, but I love this continuing thread of various people telling Matt that he really doesn't know anything. Cause we had like, we had Blake in the previous episode being like, Oh man, you really are dumb. Aren't you? And then when he was talking to Vladimir and trying to piece together what he knew, Vladimir uh, insinuates again that man, you're just really kind of, fishing for straws here well you know, he insults all of us right he lists uh mm-hmm. he says it's al capone's accountant and, uh-huh. and he's like american schools no better than russian schools <laughs> i said one note but actually i got a question here for you because i i know how i felt were you did you start to believe that vladimir was changing here yes when he started to offer up yes i did too i don't know like i, I felt like i got played as well because obviously the scene ends with Vladimir faking out Matt and they get into a tussle and end up falling through to the bottom basement. Right. Right. Well, and we know from previous episodes, Vladimir is a, not just a fighter, but a survivor. 
you know, um, and I think if he would have turned here, like while I did get that feeling, I think if he would have just turned right here, that probably would have been too quick for this character. It just shows great writing on their part that like logically we can say we know that that can't happen. Like you said, it's too quick, but emotionally we felt like it could happen. And that's just good writing and then good acting on both um, Charlie Cox and Vladimir's actors. Right. I do not have one second. One second. Three. Hey, with with uh, editing magic, it can be one second. It's gonna have to be editing magic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it is, Nikolai Nikol. Really? N i k o l a e f f. Nikolai. 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 Go with that. Nikolai. Great, great acting on Charlie Cox and Nikolai's part. So after their tussle finds them unconscious at the bottom of the basement, we get to a new scene where the media has arrived on the scene and Ben watches on. Uh, Blake arrives to kind of tease Ben about how he's old and irrelevant and that the the TV is is taking over the written news. And then we switch to the hospital scene where Karen's trying to reach Matt. And despite Foggy being concerned himself, he's doing the best he can to to persuade Karen that everything's okay. But as the scene ends, we obviously get to see that Foggy is just as concerned as Karen. Yes. Okay, one small note as the media shows up, right? Uh, Okay, two small notes. One, I mentioned in the first um, time we see Ben, and you kind of start to have that play on uh, print media's dying out, and they kind of bring that back up. But the other thing is, what what I just found funny was... So the camera comes over and you see the reporter from behind standing there. You see the person, the cameraman, you know, but then next to him, you see somebody with a boom mic, which Uh doesn't make sense because it's a TV reporter and she holds her own mic. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? So that's so weird that that's something that they would mess up because that's obviously media production. Right. And this is a media production team. So why does that get overlooked? I don't know. It, well, it is probably, you know, you're just not expecting somebody to point that out. Like it very well uh-huh. could have just been the actual boom mic operator for the show capturing her words for when you see her on TV, like when Fisk ah. is watching, you know, and, and that's what's going on. And that's who it is. And he gets to say, hey, mom, look, I'm in the show. Like it very well could have been that. Okay, just, that makes a little bit more sense. I just I used to work at a TV station, and we never used a boom mic, and the reporters had their own microphone, and you know, and so I'm just I looked at it and I was just like, what? <laughs> That's why I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast because you bring a lot of the 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 technical side of the filmmaking to this, and I that makes me happy. I never would have caught that. <laughs> yeah, you know, going back to this idea of Blake teasing Ben about his irrelevancy. Um, you know, we've seen that Ben has constantly been surrounded by this notion of creeping irrelevancy, you know, with the blog conversation, the conversation with his informant and their reverence for the old days. Uh, and now this, but I don't know, there was something about it that felt out of place this time around. Like I I get what they're going for that, you know, when Blake says that's you not mattering anymore, but even back in what was this 2013, 2014, 2015. 2015 i think you can make the same argument for traditional television media being irrelevant too and so it just it felt weird that they were trying to take that shot with this example yeah well you know um many times i'm like i don't have tv and people get shocked 
And they're like, how do you not have a TV? I'm like, no, 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 I have a TV. I don't pay for TV. I do streaming. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, you have that term cut the cord, right? And go to streaming services. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that in 2010. Wow. Yeah. That's way ahead of the curve. It, it, yeah, it was. Um, and so, yeah, we were, we started doing just streaming in 2010. Um, and I remember mm-hmm. talking some of my friends into doing the same. So that eh, it's a little dated, but okay. I mean, I guess the way you could kind of spin it and it kind of tries to bring into what you, you mentioned where if, you know, go back to that scene where Ben and his editor are having the conversation about blogs. If this show came out today, it wouldn't be about blogs. It'd be about fake news. So I guess you could kind of spin it with that lens where Blake knowing or probably knowing that Fisk controls the media, it's Blake detailing that the truth doesn't matter. The truth is only what the people in power dictated is. Right, but, right. Yeah. Which that, that that feels like a read that is more current, but I don't know if that's exactly what they were going for at the time. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I, I do think it works knowing mm-hmm. how much um, Fisk owns. Uh, yeah. You know, and owns might not be the right, right word, but has in his pocket. Now, I do want to say, you mentioned about Foggy and Karen as part of your setup, right? Um, right. And we kind of there. I have a note that just says in all caps, why with three question mark, those two work so well together. Uh, <laughs> and I know it's something we talked about last episode, but it's still just banging my head against the wall of like, uh, this is the direction you're writing and your chemistry is taking you. Anyways, why not develop that? But okay. I guess that's why I'm doing a podcast about it and not making it, but okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, the only note that I have regarding this is, I mean, Foggy's a good friend. Um, you know, I, I, I basically said it in the setup, but, you know, the way the scene ends where Karen walks away and then the look of concern shows on Foggy's face and he immediately tries to call Matt himself, he's worried but he places Karen before himself and not letting that worry show. And then he even mm-hmm. tries to place Matt before himself by mm-hmm. saying, I'll go look for him, even though that he's injured. Um, you know, yeah. it, it's it's a good character moment for Foggy. It is. It is. I, you know, and we mentioned this last episode. Um, they do a lot with very little screen time uh, for Foggy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at this point, I think we come back to Matt and Vladimir. And this is after they've fallen through the floors. And... We continue uh, some of their conversation, uh, but only after Matt brings Vladimir back with CPR. I'm a little rusty on my story circle here, the the hero's journey. Uh, but the fact that Vladimir and Matt end up in the bottom of the warehouse is so narratively satisfying to me. Because I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try and do my best to kind of detail why I love this scene in this episode much based on what I know of the story circle is, you know, the story circle is all about this circular process that stories go through where, you know, characters undergo a series of trials before getting what they want and are able to return back the other side having changed, you know, at the bottom of the circle, like if you draw a circle at the top, it starts with a character at a starting position. They want something, enter an unfamiliar, unfamiliar territory, adapt to it, get what they want, and the return having changed. Is that making sense before I continue? 
It does. It basically where where this comes from is you have a psychologist by the name of Carl Jung, and he has mm-hmm. what's called Jungian archetypes. Uh, mm-hmm. You're looking at the basics like the king role, uh, the hero slash warrior role. There's a magician. There's a lover archetype. And then you get a guy by the name of Joseph Campbell who mm-hmm. comes along and basically the hero's journey in his study of comparative religions and comparative myths takes those archetypes, finds them across these cultures, and comes up with this hero's journey. And then, right. yeah, and... And then, uh, well, to take that even a step... I, I was just going to say, and, and then, like, you get creators using that... And that's why some of these stories that resonate with us so well is for Carl Jung, if I'm, if I'm getting this right, it, it's something that's within all of us. Like we're, mm-hmm. those roles are innately within us and we can recognize them when we see them. And so when you have good stories that tap into that and those archetypes, we identify and, and are able to get sucked in. And so to, to, cause you were detailing, was it Carl Jung to... Joseph Campbell. I just lost the, Joseph Campbell. And then to take that a step further, the the way that I was kind of brought into it was that, you know, Dan Harmon even took that and simplified it a little bit more, which is where I picked up on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's where like I'm getting that the very simplified version of it. Like I haven't delved into it as deep as say going to the Joseph Campbell version. But so when you get to the bottom of the circle, the the two detailed points you have is getting what the character wants and paying a price for it. Matt almost got what he wanted out of Vladimir, but he pays the price by letting his guard down, and now they find themselves alone and in further danger. Here they have nothing but to contend with their ideologies they represent, and we get to see who they really are. So, you know, clearly Vladimir isn't interested in helping Matt, but Matt still revives him back to life. And, you know, Matt couldn't couldn't let him die. Like, he had every opportunity here to do it, and he just, he still couldn't. Right. Well, and Matt does play this off in the sense of use because Vladimir says, you just couldn't do it, could you? You just couldn't mm-hmm. let me die. Uh, and he says, I think he even out, outright says, I might have written it down. He says, I'm not done with you. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I will say this. No, go ahead and make your point. No, I was just going to say that, you know, I, Vladimir gets to learn firsthand just how strong Matt's convictions are. And I, I... I just love this scene a lot because of the way that we're, we're trailing or at least the way that I got to track it through the story circle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you were talking about that, one of the things I was looking at is that's where we at on our notes. That is about scene 13. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Okay. So it's a little bit past midway, you know, Uh when, when thinking about it in in those terms, honestly, I, I kind of got distracted just a little bit. Uh, by the CPR. Oh yeah. But yeah, just because. Okay, so so CPR, right? If I if I'm getting this right, CPR, what you're doing is you're pumping the heart's not pumping, and so you're pumping blood through the body, you mm-hmm. know, and so you're forcing the heart to do it, uh, and that's getting blood to the organs, the brain, and and things like that. So to stop and do the pounding, like it's not how hard you hit them is what like kickstarting the heart and. And I just find it interesting how so many times movies go to that for for that dramatic effect. And it, you know, I didn't I didn't pick up on that, but you detailing that, it's 
again, I guess I'm going to, this is my phrase of the week, to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to have that moment at the beginning where Claire calls out, like, it's not like how it is in the movies. And then they turn around and they have this scene, which has been obviously dramatized for the movies. Right. Yeah. I mean, you got to do it. I mean, to, to push the heart, push through the sternum and all that stuff. I mean, it, I mean, you're not doing it softly. Uh, yeah. but, but like you have to have a, that, what he begins with that pace, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so to, to stop and do that. And when you see that in movies, it's just that dramatic effect mm-hmm. and people keep going back to it. So clearly it works. It like, it becomes part of the visual vocabulary of it, it, cinema. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. So after Matt brings Vladimir to life, we get a new scene where we see that communication is being established between Matt and Fisk via walkie talkie. Uh, you know, Matt doing his best to locate an exit from the warehouse and he tries to lift a grate that he can't lift up on his own. And while doing so, we see that Fisk interrupts on the walkie talkie and we get our first interaction between Fisk and Matt. My first note actually um, was when this came out originally, people were wondering about that sniper. Is that, was that sniper a reference or a nod to Bullseye? which is a classic daredevil villain. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was the first thing I wrote actually uh, about this scene. Um, Now I do like, and and some, and I don't know if it's just the format because, because we talked about the restraint of having buildup of seeing Fisk and it feels very quick that the two of them are encountering each other, but this is episode six and there's what? 12, 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not as quick as it feels to me to have them interact. Uh, but I, I do like that they have that confrontation in the middle of an episode where Matt's wrestling with, you know, the person he's becoming. And it's the stage that they've set for this to happen. You know, continuing that line of thought, you know, about our characters being at the lowest point of their their journey uh, the, the being it's great that this is the fi- first time they're interacting because you know we see just how control Fisk has over the situation and then we have Matt who's literally down in a basement with a man he despises and no way out he has every reason to give up especially when Fisk offers him an out but Matt will not budge it's just strong character re- representation for both of them well yeah and well you mentioned how much control Fisk has and I'm not trying to jump too far ahead on this scene, but on that thought of control, when they give the go for that sniper to take the shot, it wasn't just two random police officers. Like like one officer, we don't know who it was, but they took out Blake. And mm-hmm. you have to think that that was intentional after the mess up with the phone in terms of giving it up, right? Or, or right. being careless. Almost think, definitely. Like- or being careless, I think was the word they used. Yeah, because Fisk says, we'll deal with Blake later. And... I mean, that from that moment forward, he was a dead man. Right. I liked how they gave it a hint that it might be at Ben, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, that crosshairs was on Ben. It kind of then they cut away and you hear the shot and Blake's the one that goes down um, and clearly talking about, again, that control on Fisk's part. He didn't go shooting up the crowd. It was two officers shot. Right. Because, I mean, we've we've seen you know up to this point how fisk has this plan of turning the media on matt like he he's trying to get everybody to you know we have claire where she said that the man in the black mask was getting known and he was being 
he was being known for doing these good deeds. And here we're seeing Fisk take that image and destroy it. You know, Matt kind of had this rebuttal where he was like, even if I fail, people will see what I was trying to do and take up from where I left off. And Fisk immediately squashes that idea. Yes. Like, I I really found it interesting because he said, the issue with people like you is your ideology. But very quickly, I think Fisk kind of showed that eh, your ideology, or well, because I don't agree with Fisk, but I think he showed, he try, he very effectively, though, kind of made Matt feel like he was fighting for nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because even he mentioned, you know, we're doing the same thing, trying to help the city. I'm just trying to do it. And, it, and I love the line. He didn't say on a bigger scale. He said on a scale that matters. Yes. he. I mean, he's so dismissive of Matt. He's like continuously undercutting him. Like you said, making him feel like what he does doesn't matter. And one way that we see it is because Matt says, I'm going to make you pay for what you've done. And without missing a beat, Fisk replies, no, you are not. I mean, Fisk feels invincible. He is untouchable. And then another thing that I want to point out while we're just discussing the way that Fisk continuously undercuts Matt, one of the things that I found really illuminating, and it was because of the way that you track this, Fisk said, you're a child playing at being a hero. I like this line specifically because you referenced, you know, Fisk's childhood so many was brought up so many times in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. And we even saw mm-hmm. the way that he got hurt when Vanessa poked fun of his childlike dessert. Yeah. So it it's cool that we know that that's a point of contingency for Fisk. And to get to watch him try and throw that rebuttal at Matt just shows a lot of uh, insight for who Fisk is as a person. Yes, that that's a really good. Uh, I really like that insight. I really mm-hmm. You know, trying to take um, basically his own insecurities and throw it at someone else. Yeah. Um, well, and I like also here there there was two lines. Um, well, well, Matt tries to gain the upper hand, where you know you don't want Vladimir dead, something along those lines, because he, what he might tell me, and Fish says like, well, you know, so clearly he hasn't told you anything, and you know, and then we see Matt kind of that frustration showing or not being able to take the upper hand there with, with, with that line. <clears throat> what was the other one? There was one other one. Oh, when he talked about framing them and Matt was like, do you, laughed and was like, do you really think people are going to believe that? And this very clearly. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't blame him. You dunce. <laughs> like he's, almost, he's almost like a step away from just being like, yeah, how do you not see this? <laughs> You know what? And I praised Matt for being intelligent earlier in this episode. I need to rethink that. <laughs> oh man! But no, and um, to me, honestly, this is where I took my most notes in this scene. I this is I, one of the best scenes I think. You know, we've been tracking how much Matt and Fisk are alike, and now we get to see it plainly stated from Fisk himself. Uh, Fisk draws so many comparisons between the two of them. But he makes sure to hammer on the point that Fisk is a realist and can make, like you said, actual change. Um, I also like that in this moment, Fisk states not everyone deserves a happy ending. And when he says that, the camera lingers on Vladimir. You know, Fisk is right. There's no Mm -hmm. scenario in which Vladimir deserves a happy ending. And it's almost like we're trying to be persuaded into this belief that, okay, you know, Fisk is right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This this other point that I have, this is something because, we you know, we finally brought up our spoiler policy. Mm-hmm. last week yeah I, oh yeah we're spoiler zone by the way okay go ahead we're definitely spoiler zone how do we feel about potential rumors as spoilers 
because I have a way to connect this to the MCU proper. Let's let's hear it. Let's um and it, uh, and if you decide that like okay maybe we shouldn't do that we can edit it out but I'll okay. just go for it. You know it, if the rumors are true and Spider Man three is going to feature Daredevil being Peter Parker's lawyer. It's really cool that we get to see Matt learning firsthand what it's like to have a city pitted against you. If they bring him in to defend Peter Parker against Mysterio's death, then who better than Matt? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, my God. See, and now they'll never know because of the magic of editing. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I think, <laughs> no, I, I think that's an excellent point. Like, I really, really hope that's the way they go. Mm-hmm. You know, I... I understand that might not be the case, um, right. but that's that's what I'm pulling for. I mean, the rumors are out there, but I think that would be a really nice tie-in, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, even if he doesn't suit up as Daredevil and it's just as Matt Murdock, you know, y- you could have some acting choices, some writing choices that he, under, like you said, he understands exactly as you said, the city turned against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And you kind of just... Uh, laid the tracks here for me you know we obviously because we're doing this podcast if they go this route we will be rewarded because we have seen daredevil yes but if you said with the writing choices if they only bring him in as the lawyer it's almost like a reset for establishing him in the universe and they can not necessarily create a new origin but if the audience hasn't seen daredevil yet this is their chance to learn about him as like a quick catch up in a way. Oh yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, this paves a, a good, a direct tie in into the MCU proper. Right. Well, and it's, and it's the way we've started to grow and it's the way we've started to grow accustomed to how they bring characters in with black Panther. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean some Peter Parker himself. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think it would be a, a nice way to introduce that character. I mean, as we do this, especially with all the Fox properties they got um, not to drift too far from the episode, but that's, I think the direction they're going in terms of introducing the X-Men and all those other things slowly. Right. And all these, these wealth of characters they have uh, maybe Deadpool, if Deadpool does show up, it'll have to be something along those lines. I, I would imagine. Um, mm-hmm. and, that, and it was an excellent way to get Murdoch in there. Yeah. Yeah, even if they don't do a re, even if they do a recast, uh, it's a it's a good way to to do it that way. But just the Matt Murdock, it's a nice on ramp. Mm-hmm. So after the scene where we have our back and forth with Fisk and Matt, we get to see the immediate effects of Fisk's framing of the man in the black mask with. Everybody in the hospital seeing the news reports revealing that the man in the black mask is responsible for the explosions. We get to see how Claire, Foggy, and Karen react to this news. You know, so we we just had this conversation about Matt saying, do you really believe the people are going to believe you that I did this? And Fisk is like, yeah, you know, we get to see the immediate aftermath where it switches to Karen, Foggy, and Claire having to question the man in the black mask lends credence to Fisk's threat. You know, obviously Claire knows who Matt is and what he's doing, but the way she looks at that TV, you can almost see a part of her that's hoping, I hope this isn't Matt's doing. And then with Karen, Karen is quickly to point out like, hey, that's the man who saved me. I don't think he would do this. And then finally, and I think the one that hurts the most of all, is Foggy just straight up says, you can't trust a person in a mask. And these are the people who are closest to Matt 
and to see that even they are kind of shaken up a little bit by this. Oh yeah. It just goes to show how much trouble Matt is in. Oh yeah. I, I think that's a good note on foggy. You know, I mean, clearly he doesn't know, but to, to say mm-hmm. that, um, as generalized as it did, just a blanket statement, he wears a mask. You can't trust him. Um, mm-hmm. but the next scene, you know, starts with Claire calling Matt, you know, I mean, when you consider what they've been through together, the read I got out of that was she thought it happened. If that, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. like it was believable enough that Claire had to make the call and check to, to keep playing off this conversation between them, you know, Matt admitting to Claire that she was right about him being close to someone he hates shows just how much Vladimir got to him. You know, Matt has had serious doubts casted on his ability to accomplish his goals without compromising his ideology. And it's it's just such a crushing blow to see him here at his lowest and basically be like, you're right, I'm sorry, you know, take care. Because he doesn't think he's getting out of this. No, that was the big takeaway here for me uh, is in that exchange that Matt thought he was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which goes back to what we mentioned about Fisk and that control. And I think something I mentioned about that that feeling they gave that they showed of just everything coming down on them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or just that feeling of being surrounded. And it was just one after another, layer after layer of you are truly trapped. And, you know, even if it's not explicitly stated, I think Vladimir being here to witness this conversation and see how much Matt is willing to give up to to try to accomplish his goals. Even though we're seeing Matt falter, this you know we see that this is the moment that Vladimir switches because he he gets up and helps Matt lift the grate. And even if Vladimir doesn't believe it's possible to finish all this without death, Matt has won this debate between Fisk and Fisk ideology and Matt's ideology by being able to convince Vladimir to to kind of move more closer. Um, to doing the right thing. Right. And I think it took that phone conversation and in particular, like you said, Vladimir hearing that phone conversation to be convinced that Daredevil is genuine to, uh, mm-hmm. or, well, let's say Daredevil's attempting to be genuine, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cause as you track through this conversation, it, it's one of those things where maybe Vladimir, I don't know. Does he feel sorry for him? I mean, we'll talk about this as you go through, but, but it almost wonders like, cause he says like, are you going to do in the end what you know you must do? You know? Right. So it does make me wonder, is it just like, well, I kind of feel sorry for you that you think you can do this, um, your way. It's almost like he has gained his respect. Yes. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that Matt's right. He thinks Matt's going to die. Right. But he respects the conviction. Yes. Because, I mean, like, we didn't touch on it, but in this previous scene, Fisk is offering up to Matt, like, hey, kill the Russian and I'll let you go. And immediately the first thing Vladimir does is he starts reaching for a wooden spike and without missing a beat, Matt is able to squash his arm and kick it away. But I think here Vladimir sees that that was never an option for Matt. He was never going to kill him. And so I I think it is a combination of that, the phone call, and he now has uh, Matt's respect. Yeah. Well, and, or vice versa. Well, no, he respects Matt, and I like the way you mentioned that and use the word convictions, because uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if you take Vladimir's story as it as Vladimir's story is coming to an end, uh, from when we first really dive into Vladimir, I know we see him with the group, but I'm thinking back when we see him in Russia, you know, and and he pulled he broke a rib off of the dead uh, 
the dead person. While we might not like his methods and thinks he's crazy, he is very much a person of his convictions. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think in that sense, he recognizes that in Matt. So with their new joined forces, they are able to lift the grate and carry on. Meanwhile, uh, the SWAT team is infiltrating the warehouse and they quickly kill Officer Sullivan, the police officer that Matt tied up earlier. They're trying to, to catch up to Vladimir and Matt, who have lowered themselves in the sewer and begin their escape. Uh, Vladimir is so severely injured that he can barely hold himself up under his own weight. And they reach this point where they are cornered by the SWAT team. And after Matt does away with them, Vladimir has found himself in possession of a weapon. And the question becomes, what does Vladimir do moving forward? If he will use that against Matt or not? Yes. First thing I want to say is I felt so bad for Sullivan in that that moment. You know, well, because it's to me, what made it just so heartbreaking was he actually made the call in Sullivan's dead before he killed him. You know, like, like if you reverse that, he goes in and kills him and then says Sullivan's dead. It's kind of shocking, but you know Mm -hmm. that Fisk has the police on the payroll. Mm -hmm. Um, But for him to hear it, the death sentence before it happens, just to me, that was just really heartbreaking moment. Right. Because you can see the pain in his eyes. He's like, he's putting it together and it's it, what's hard is he did the right thing. Yeah. Like in, he, yeah. in the perfect world, he did the right thing. But because he didn't trust Matt, it's just, it, it, yeah. it hurts. It, like you said, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And he didn't have good reason to trust Matt either. And so, yeah. Uh, the note that I have here is Vladimir could never be redeemed. Like he's done way too many heinous things for us to ever root for him. But it speaks volume of Matt's character that he was able to inspire Vladimir into sacrificing himself for the greater good. Because as I set up in the scene, after Matt takes out the SWAT team, Vladimir picks up one of the the machine guns that falls to the ground, and the scene is framed as though he's going to turn on Matt. But in a turn of events, we see Vladimir say, I will stay, and by you time, you keep going. Right. You know, there's an element of revenge for Anatoly and sticking it to Fisk, but Vladimir made a choice to not be self-serving and shoot Matt. And he's been won over. And, mm-hmm. You know, Matt won that debate. And also, uh, the ultimate reward, he gave up the name. Not only did he gave up the name, he said, you know, here's the name you think you want, Leland Owsley. And I liked that little extra, and not even a jab, just this realization of, on Vladimir's part of, I'm going to help you and reward you, but this isn't, they're still kind of barking up the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, it was a nice way to end Vladimir's, you brought it up, I mean, if, if Vladimir had his own little story circle, uh, it was a nice mm-hmm. way to end it, you know, because um, um, well, he had that line, you know, that says, the moment you put on the mask, you got into a cage with animals, animals don't stop fighting, are, are can you do, and I've already alluded to this, can you do what you know you must do? I, I really liked uh, how they brought his his thing to a conclusion. And to me, I, this final conversation that you're talking about, um, you know, the moment you put on the mask, you got in a cage with animals. Animals don't stop fighting until one is dead. You know, this final conversation brings the title of the episode into focus. It's called Condemned. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Vladimir has basically condemned Matt with his burden, and we can see the weight it has on him as he walks away in rage in that final shot. You know, I we, we talked about the story circle and how... 
you know, it tells a complete story, but whenever you're telling a serialized story like Daredevil, you can't obviously end on a complete story because we have more episodes to go to. And I love that they were able to tell their story arc in this episode and still propel us forward because this conversation is going to propel so much of that underlying drama moving forward. Can Matt do what he needs to do without compromising his morals? Right, right. Um, And I guess that's going to be the thing we keep tabs on the rest of the way through. Like, if the answer to the question is yes, you have a no-kill code, then we're going to track it through. I, I have another point to make, but I want to, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to distract from the, I feel like the deeper conversation. So. Well, the only, the only other, I have my final wrap up thought. So I'm okay. If you want to bring it yeah, in, go okay. ahead. So how did Vladimir not get shot? <laughs> like, uh. like Daredevil, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Daredevil is doing his thing. Right. And he disarms him and whatnot, but, and, and again, and it was, it was for effect, right. And in, in terms mm-hmm. of action sequence, for us to be able to see what's going on and you get the gunshot and it, it, it brings the tension. So like, I get why they did it and I don't have a problem with why they're doing it, but they're in such a confined space and Matt throws Vladimir off to the side and that thing is shooting everywhere. Like how did Vladimir uh-huh. not get shot again? I guess the universe already felt bad enough for him. He took so much damage this episode. <laughs> they just let him slide. Okay. That that's I'll go with that. Like that was, that was <laughs> one of my first note notes and the ending note was like, did he just, really open that door with a kick like yeah i thought that was so out of place (laughs) for especially i mean you have to accept that he's uh you know built um Mm -hmm. uh and works out and we even had a workout scene and you're like pushing on the door and it's not coming open um and so that that little quick jump kick to knock off what i assume is a padlock (laughs) I'm not going to think too much more about it, but okay. (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll kind of go on this limb with you. I think there was a, as much as I love this episode, there was a lot of little moments that just felt weird. Um, what, like the first one I remember is the first time that Matt lights up that flare. I don't, he kind of like misses, I think. And he kind of looks dopey there with his mask on. He's blind. Uh, He's blind, Trey. Well, okay. (laughs) Well now I feel horrible. Uh, well, and then the next one is whenever he disarms Sullivan, there was something weird about the way he kind of like came from off screen. Yeah. And I think it was because we're so used to him being so dramatic and doing flips. Right. But Sullivan was like, so not a threat that he just comes off, you know, like, okay, this isn't worth, worth my time. Okay, show off. Okay. And, and then, uh, and then the last one that kind of fell out of place is, I don't know if you caught this whenever he was trying to lift the grate, you know, obviously there's a lot of stress that goes into trying to lift something heavy, but there was one particular effort where he just made the weirdest noise and I kind of laughed. Like it was just like this weird grunt. And I was like, okay, I guess they're going to leave that in. Well, in, in yeah. fairness, if he's able to just, you know, take a moment of silence and scan the uh-huh. room and find out the flares are there, you'd think he'd catch it on the first time. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we could go on these little, these little tangents. But I mean, I, I guess I could just kind of wrap it up you know, overall, this episode is easily my favorite of the season so far. Um, I, I was genuinely excited throughout, and I love the simplicity of its narrative. You know, Matt needs to escape with Vladimir to get information. You know, that's simple, but the way they use that story to really examine this debate between Fisk and Matt is beautiful. And, you know, I'm, I'm also a sucker for, like, characters trapped in a situations where enemies have to work together. It, it was 
kind of reminiscent of like um, uh, 310 to Yuma. And mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. kind of that kind of dynamic between uh, characters being thrusted into a situation together. Right. Well, coming off last episode, what I really liked about this one, and I think you mentioned it, so many characters, Claire comes to mind, but so many characters had to make a choice. Um, it wasn't just them acting or or one thing after another happening to just kind of that a b pacing you know claire had to mm-hmm. make a choice uh matt had to make the biggest choice with in, in terms of ideology um mm-hmm. you know fisks made some choices because uh, clearly right there was these problems are really opportunities right mm-hmm. um so he is making adjustments to his plan um that will take them down a particular path. So I, I really liked uh, that aspect of this episode. Yeah. Very good episode for sure. And, and actually I, I did watch the open of the next one. You did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's really going to be very hard for me once we get to season two uh, to, to do this week by week. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's going to do it for our discussion of Season 1, Episode 6, Condemned. But as you know, we can't leave this episode without our question of the week. All right. And this week's question, Trey... If there was one thing, and and I realized, right, as I said that, it's not going to be one, but if there was one thing um, in the MCU that you could change or do differently, what would that be? The first thing that came to mind was in Age of Ultron, we see the tensions get really high between uh, uh, Steve and Tony regarding like, you know, oh, Tony went behind their backs and built this this AI and created Ultron, and they're having this terribly tense moment. And we know Civil War... Well, I don't know if we knew Civil War was coming, but now we know Civil War is coming. I really wish they would have left them at ends a little bit in Age of Ultron. If we could have had that tension still palpable from Age of Ultron mm-hmm. into Civil War, mm-hmm. I think it would have made Civil War that much more impactful. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I mean, they don't, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, oh, they're bitter enemies by the end of Age of Ultron, but give, give that, that, that lingering narrative thread some service. Right. Like maybe like a conversation of like them, like, hey, I'm still not happy that you did this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, that, I think that you're right. That in elements of like tension, um, mm-hmm. that definitely would have, would help create some. Um, my first, okay. So my first one is a conceptually, I felt, I wish they wouldn't have tried to get so big off the popularity of the Avengers. Well, cause we're talking about this daredevil, right. And it first came out, it's canon and off of that and agents of shield was supposed to be part of it. Right. And then as you're going through these shows that are supposed to be part of the MCU proper, well, the fact that I even have to say MCU proper now, you know, um, where those were supposed to be part of it and have those tie-ins, I felt like, looking back, I felt like off that popularity and success of Avengers, they started to blow up in that sense too fast. Um, and it got me and a lot of people excited, but and then it didn't pan out, uh, yeah. you know, with all these little side projects. So that would be something I'd, I'd want them to do differently. Um so that that would be my number one and i can see that i mean i I mean we've talked about how i've only seen a a set amount of the netflix shows i i the reason i quit i mean because i mean there was there's multiple reasons like my personal life got busy 
But as we've talked about, we are such fans of the MCU that we make time for this stuff. But the moment that I knew the Netflix shows and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wasn't canon anymore, I stopped prioritizing it. And so I feel that letdown of it kind of the popularity moving past its side projects. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as we mentioned at the beginning of this ep- this episode here, right? Like, we were going to start with Disney Plus shows and Black Widow and world life situations didn't allow that to happen. So we went to this but if we're honest, like we went to Daredevil season one because of that possibility of Daredevil showing up in the MCU proper, my feelings of cast recast aside, you, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and so like that drove us to do this series over another one. Do you have another one? Um, yeah, I have another one. So my my second thing, um, I really wish they would have handled Hulk better in infinity war and Endgame, like i'm not mad with what we got but it feels like there's a part of his story that's missing um you know infinity war happens and we get this match with thanos and you know they use thanos taking him out so quickly as a way to establish thanos but they really set hulk back in a way that like you know you're waiting for this this not necessarily revenge but this chance to redeem himself and it never really happens in my opinion because we get that time skip and we get Professor Hulk, and we never get that middle ground. Right. And I really wish there would have been some better service to that. Right. And in the least, I'd like to have seen the transition. Uh, who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe that's a one-season Disney Plus show. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that in the sense of like, oh, that's in development or anything. I just, I, I would like to see that transition, you know, because yeah. building into Infinity War... And in game, I know the talk coming out of Mark Ruffalo and others would be that Thor Ragnarok, Infinity War, and in game, if you follow just the Hulk, should feel like a solo movie. Yep. Uh, and I didn't get that because you you don't get. I mean, yeah, he does a snap and brings everybody back, but it's not the same as this is the one that took you out you never had another confrontation with Thanos or it's unresolved. Right. And, or the final transformation into professor Hulk. Yeah. Okay. My second one. Uh-huh. Um, sorry, I'm giggling just a little bit. <laughs> my second one. <laughs> that makes me excited. My second one has to do with winter soldier. Uh-oh. Uh Oh God. <laughs> now, honestly, the, the one thing I was a little disappointed with in the winter soldier, and it's hard to find something to be disappointed with in that movie was I just remember feeling like, man, you cut out so many possible storylines when you took down uh, Hydra the way they did. Yeah. Or in Sh- S.H.I.E.L.D. the way they did kind of a two for one. Now, having said that, this isn't comics, so you so it can't go on forever. Right. You know, and, and so that affords you to make those dramatic choices. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it You know. But but yeah, I just remember thinking it was like, wow, that's that was quick, you know, or or as a turn. Um, so yeah, and I mean, it just it kind of leaves things in limbo for the Shield side of the universe because, you know, we've had like obviously Nick Fury is a very important character, but what has he been doing ever since Winter Soldier? Right, and I think they're kind of like laying those track lines down, but it just it it feels in limbo well i mean after the far from home i mean 
Has it been Nick yeah. Fury after Winter Soldier? Save that for another time. You know what? I have a friend that I've been discussing this with because she has been recently like doing a um, a Marvel MCU rewatch, mm-hmm. and I I told her about that idea, and she has been keeping tabs on. <laughs> for ex- for example, there's this theory that Fury has been replaced for a while yeah. because I think in Captain Marvel he has this line where he's like I don't like my sandwiches cut diagonally or something like right. that. Right, and then I go back to and, Age of Ultron. Yeah. And then Age of Ultron there's a sandwich cut diagonally. And so I told her that and she has been keeping track. He's like, "Well, he can't be changed here because when he bled, he was it was red blood." And so like <laughs> I, we'll have to like bring her in to oh, help yeah. us discuss that theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She, we're going to have to do a, a rewatch of a particular maybe it's Winter Soldier. Um, yeah, and and talk about Fury, or is it uh, well, Furry? Well, I don't know if we. No, God, <laughs> uh, I don't think we've talked about this uh, on podcast. But like one of the things that we're doing, you know, our Daredevil rewatch is only going to get us so far, and we kind of had this idea that once we finish Daredevil, that we um, kind of do a Black Widow rewatch where we watch the movies that she's specifically in to kind of help us get ready for the movie. Um, I think it'd be cool to kind of do a Nick Fury rewatch at some point too. Oh yeah. Yeah. We have things in the works. We have some ideas. Uh, do you have any more, uh, things you'd like to see changed? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick with that. Uh, I mean, there's, yeah. there's, yeah, I think I'm just going to go with that for, for this episode. Yeah. So if you'd like to chime in on things that you wish was done differently in MCU, or if you'd like to talk about season one, episode six, Condemned of Daredevil, you can reach us at MCU Need to Know on Twitter or at MCU Need to Know on Instagram as well. Or if you'd like to write in an email, MCU Need to Know at gmail.com. And we'd really appreciate it if on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, you go and subscribe, download, uh, give us a rating. Uh, we really appreciate the feedback. And of course, share with a friend. And of course, if you want more MCU Need to Know goodness, you can always visit mcuneedtoknow.com so you can find out just where this podcast is available and leave us a comment there as well. And before we go, I'd like to give a special thanks to Nick Sandy for the use of our theme song, a rendition that he created on his own. And uh, that'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Trey. Thank you. Bye-bye. been going through and what kind of money projections um and then to take that and you know project out into other markets Mm -hmm. i mean the big the big question has been can marvel movies restart the movie industry and we talked about and we talked a little bit about it before how it's so unfair to the character natasha and black widow and and obviously the actress scarlet witch who's deserved a single movie for so long to no, no, one, no, no. it gets Scarlet Witch, not Scarlet Johansson. Oops. All right, let me start that over. And we've talked you about call it before. Her Scarlet Witch. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's how real the MCU is to me. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Okay.